lesson number 112 in your book, of such is the kingdom of God, but this will be of such is the kingdom of God, part one. (laughs) And we will only get through the parable of the persistent widow, and we'll have to save the penitent publican and the precious children till next week, Lord willing. Okay? Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father, we just thank you again for this opportunity we have to come into your house to uh, not only fellowship with with our sisters in Christ, but to get to know you better through a study of your word. Lord, I pray that your, your Holy Spirit would convict every one of us here, myself included, most of all, about the necessity of prayer and how we need to be persistent in prayer. It is such a privilege we have as your children to come boldly before the throne of grace. It's a privilege, but it is also a duty because you have commanded us to pray without ceasing. We are in a spiritual warfare. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. Therefore, we need to take unto ourselves the whole armor of God, which includes, most importantly, being persistent in praying. And I do pray, Lord, that every one of your children would would pray particularly this coming week as we have probably the most important election in our country's history lord may we commit to pray that your will would be done lord here in this country and lord we would ask that we might turn back to the principles upon which this country was founded that people would turn back to you we just we we love you, Lord, and we love this country, and yet we we know you're sovereign, and uh, we know that whatever happens, it will be because this is this is your will, and we and 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 we do thank you that we still do have the privilege to meet here today. May we not take that privilege for granted, and Lord, I just pray now that you would help each of us to focus on what your spirit has to teach us through your word. I pray that you would hide your servant behind the words and the works of the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone deserves the glory, for we do pray in his blessed name. Amen. As we come now to lesson number 12, 112 in our Life of Christ study, which covers the first 17 verses in Luke 17. No, not 17, 18. Did I say 17 earlier? Luke 18. I'm sorry. Turn to Luke 18. We are going to look at two more of the Lord's parables. We have sure been looking at a lot of his parables lately, haven't we? This was the time in his earthly ministry when he really taught by way of parables a lot. And so we're going to look at two more parables as well as a little precious incident in which Jesus received unto himself some small children. Now, although the two parables are once again only found in Luke's gospel, Luke, when you think of Luke, think of the man who gave us a lot of parables. Luke, more than any of the other gospel writers, gave us parables. Now, the others did as well, but he gave us more than anyone. So in addition to um, talking about the two parables that are only found in Luke, we are going to look at that little incident that included some small children who were brought to the Lord by their parents, the disciples' 
you know, rebuke the parents for doing that. But of course, the Lord Jesus would receive unto himself small children and infants because Jesus loves the little children, doesn't he? He loves all the children of the world. But uh, that incident is found in Luke, but it also has parallel passages over in Matthew and Mark. And it is from that third account, the incident of the, the precious little children, that I took the title for this lesson which is of such is the kingdom of God. You look at uh, verse 16. That's where I got the title. Jesus called them, the children, unto him and said, Suffer little children to come unto me and forbid them not for what? Of such is the kingdom of God. That's where we got our title. Now, we ended last week's study of Luke 17 with the Lord speaking about the kingdom of God and what it will be like on earth when the Son of Man returns to establish his literal 1,000-year kingdom. Well, we find that subject continuing in our passage today in Luke 18. You know, there aren't chapter divisions in the, in the original text. So we find that subject continuing as we will find three times in, in Luke 18 up through verse 17, where I wanted to get. But three times we'll men- hear him mention either the coming of the Son of Man, as he does in verse 8, or speaking about the kingdom of God, as he does in verse 16 and again in verse 17. Now, the three divisions for our study um, are going to be the parable of the persistent widow, which we will look at this morning, and then we'll have to save for next week the parable of the Pharisee and the publican and the incident concerning those precious little children. Now, as we consider these two parables and the event having to do with the little children, we are going to learn about the type of people who will make up the kingdom of God, kingdom citizens. They will be those who, like the widow in the first parable, suffer injustice by their adversary, and yet they are persistent in prayer. They keep on praying. Kingdom citizens will be women, people like the woman who just persist in prayer. And kingdom citizens will also be like the humble, penitent um, publican who in repentance calls upon the Lord to have mercy upon him. And therefore he leaves the temple being justified. He will also be the type of person who will live in the kingdom. And then, of course, we have those like the small children who have childlike dependence and openness to come to the Lord. When he says, come unto me, they do what? They come unto him. On the other hand, in these verses, we're going to find that we also have displayed for us the attitude of those who will not be kingdom citizens, such as the unjust judge of the first parable, of whom we are told, if you look at verse Verses 2 and 4, we are told, I will read the passage in a minute, we are told that he did not fear God, neither did he regard man. He had no fear of the wrath of God, and he had no concern or care, compassion for man, for his fellow man. And he didn't even care about his reputation before man. He will not be the type of person who makes up the kingdom of God. Of course, you have to fear God. That's where all knowledge begins, is with the fear of God. And kingdom citizens will not be such people as the proud Pharisee of the second parable who thought that he was praying to God. But what was he really doing? 
He was having a bragamony ceremony. <laughs> he was bragging to himself. He was speaking. He was really boasting of himself to God. Can you imagine going before God, telling God what, how privileged God was to have a man like him who was so great and so wonderful. And he also, just like the unjust judge of the first parable, the Pharisee of the second parable also had no regard for his fellow man because how does he look at the publican who's over there, his head bent and he's beating his breast and saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He looks on his fellow man with disdain. He has no regard for his fellow man either, just like the unjust judge. And then we have a representation of others, and sad to say, this is the disciples, we have a representation of others who will not inherit the kingdom of God that is displayed to us by the attitude of the disciples. Now, of course, we know that apart from other than Judas Iscariot, the disciples do inherit the kingdom of God. They were saved men. But here they displayed the attitude of those who will not inherit the the kingdom of God by... uh, um, rebuking the parents who were trying to bring their children to Jesus. The disciples actually rebuked those parents. In other words, they were saying, they were looking down on, with disdain on the little children. Jesus doesn't have time for them. You know, they're just little children. They can't even rationalize yet. Don't bother. <laughs> so that's the wrong kind of attitude, isn't it? Because as I said, Jesus loves little children. He loves little children and all little children under the age of accountability immediately, they immediately, if they die, go into his presence. So they were displaying the same kind of elitist attitude that we have, that we see in the unjust judge and that we see in the Pharisee. The kingdom of God, what we find out in this section of such is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is for, therefore, (laughs) it's for poor defenseless women such as the widow the the kingdom of god is for wealthy penitent men such as the publican the kingdom of god is also not only for women and for men but for who else little children and then when we look at the three examples we also find out well not only for women men and children but it's for the old the widow was old, and it's for the young. The children were young. It's for the, the poor. The widow was poor. Otherwise, she could have bribed the judge, as was common practice. Um, whereas the publican was rich. All publicans were rich. They were tax collectors. They, they were rich. So what do we find out in this example? Women, men, children, young, old, rich, poor. The kingdom of God is for everyone. Exactly. All right, so let's begin by looking at the parable of the persistent widow. And that's as far as I will get. Let's look at verses 1 to 8. It says, And he spake a parable unto them to this end. Now we are told the reason for the Lord's parable. This is the uh, one of two times when the Lord gives us the reason for why he is speaking the parable, or at least Luke gave us the reason. He says, Jesus spake the parable unto this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Now here's the parable. Saying, There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him. And the word came is given in the continuous tense. So she kept on coming to him, the unjust judge, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while. 
But afterward, he said within himself, he's talking to himself, though I fear not God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge saith. And then he says, the Lord says, and shall not God avenge his own elect? which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? All right, this parable is, we see, indeed, the continuation of the conversation that the Lord had with his men back in uh, chapter 17, because we notice right away in verse 1 that it says he spake a parable unto them, and that them refers back to his disciples. He had been talking to his disciples about his return. And that was a conversation that actually really began back in verse 20 of chapter 17 when some Pharisees demanded to know when the kingdom of God would come. Well, after telling them, the Pharisees, that it was not something that they would be able to observe with their eyes of criticism because they were willfully refusing to see with eyes of faith, the, the very king of the kingdom who was standing right there in their midst after telling them that then he turned to his men in verse 22 and told them that they themselves would not literally see his return the return of the son of man and then he talked about his soon coming rejection you know that he would have to suffer many things that was a prophecy concerning his upcoming uh, suffering and crucifixion which would only be like a couple weeks away from where we are and since he was to suffer and since he was to be rejected what would naturally follow that his men his disciples would also suffer and be rejected the literal fulfillment of the Davidic covenant concerning the earthly messianic kingdom on earth would be postponed as we all know it's been postponed it has not yet come, and that is because of Israel's rejection, primarily because her leaders rejected the king, because what the leaders do, the, the citizens follow, you know. And so we've had a postponement of the kingdom. So how would his disciples then, and how would his yet future disciples, which I hope would include every one of us in this room, and how would Israel in particular in the last days especially during the tribulation period, make it through all of their times of rejection and suffering and distress and, and dangers and, and decadence and um, unjust treatment at the hands of their adversaries. How will any of Christ's followers make it through times of, of even personal struggle and persecution, times that challenge one's faith, such as times that we live in today? Um, you know, during this, this long waiting period that, that we have gone through, you know, a lot of people scoff and say, where is the, where is the promise of his coming? It's been, what, 2,000 years and he hasn't come yet. So what are we to do in this long waiting period? And how long must we continue to pray, thy kingdom come <laughs> on earth as it is in heaven? And how long must we pray, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus? 
Well, I don't think we're going to have to pray that much longer, ladies. (laughs) I really think it's right around the corner the way everything in the world is coming together. Amazing. Financially, politically, globally, everything. You know, the, the, the countries are lining up just like they predicted to line up. In um, Ezekiel 38 and in Revelation, it's really, you know, it's kind of scary. But on the other hand, if you're a Christian and, and you've, you've studied the book of Revelation and other apocalyptic literature, it's exciting times, isn't it? We could be that generation and we're out of here. Anyway, how long? How long do we need to pray? Well, these are some of the unasked questions that lie behind the statement of Luke 18.1. This parable was given by the Lord Jesus to this end, that men ought always to pray and what? Not to faint. This speaks of the temptation to quit praying, you know, in despair, to faint. We grow weary. We, we, you know, weariness can come from living in a world that is so sinful and it is so hostile to the Christian and is full of injustice and mistreatment and from living surrounded by those who have a worldview which is completely opposite from the Christian worldview, the worldview that is taught in the scripture. You can get weary in just living in a world like this, can't you? And so this, this, this commandment here that men ought always to pray and not to faint is not talking about fainting in our faith. It's talking about fainting in our prayer lives. The scripture often tells us, it encourages us not to faint. It tells us here not to faint in our prayer lives. It tells us elsewhere that we are um, not to be weary in well-doing, for in due season we will reap if we what? If if we faint not, yeah, if we sow, <laughs> we, we uh, will reap if we don't faint. That's Galatians 6, 9. And then we are also told elsewhere not to be weary and faint in our minds. We're renewed by what? We're transformed by the renewing of our minds. So we're not to grow weary in well-doing. We're not to grow, grow weary in our hearts. We're not to grow weary in our prayer lives. And we're not to grow weary in our minds. And that's what, you know, he's commending. That's why he gives this parable here. A weariness in prayer can come when you don't see anything changing. You pray and you pray and you pray and you don't see changes. You don't see answers to your prayers. And uh, things just seem to get worse and worse. Now, remember, remember, this is primarily about praying that the Lord will come, the, the, the return of the Lord and the establishment of his kingdom. We pray and we pray and we pray and we just see, see things getting worse and worse, don't we? Well, it's right on schedule then. Don't worry. <laughs> it's right on schedule because he told us things would get worse. He said that evil men would wax worse and worse. Now, we've, we've talked a lot about delay, it seems like, in the last month or so, especially when we're talking about Lazarus and his resurrection and the delay of four days. But delay is a big cause of Christians fainting in their prayer lives. And so the parable of the persistent widow is especially given to teach us that although our prayers seem to go long unanswered sometimes, we should do what? Persevere. We should persevere and not grow weary in our supplications to God. 
Prayer is a privilege. It is a great privilege that we have as the children of God to go boldly before his throne of grace with our petitions, isn't it? It's a privilege. It's also a duty. If we do not pray and if we do not persist in prayer, we are what? Sinning. We're disobeying because he says we should always pray. Talk about that in just a second. But it's sinning if we don't persist in our prayers. It's a privilege and it's a duty. And it's also a protection because we are in a spiritual warfare and we need to pray every day to you know, put on our spiritual armor and be protected from the evil one and surround our children with a, you know, a hedge of protection from the evil one and all the temptations that are out there. So the Lord's will in the matter is very clear. We ought always to pray and not to faint. The cost of discipleship is high. We've talked about the cost of discipleship before. It is high. And it is going to be a whole lot higher as days move closer to the time of the Lord's return. And the cost of of discipleship right before his return will be very high. Those people who will be living in the tribulation will, many of them, most of them, will have to suffer the ultimate cost of discipleship with their very lives. And it's going to get tough, ladies. It's going to get tough. And I am so concerned about our next generation and my grandchildren because they're going to face a lot of persecution. And I I don't see that things are going to get better because the Bible doesn't say they are. I don't know where this nation is going to fit in exactly. That's why it's so important to go to the polls this week and, and, and pray for godly men and women to be in our places of, of uh, leadership. Thank you. She always has to finish my sentences. <laughs> sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong. <laughs> and especially in positions of, of ju- judges. We'll talk about that because this has a lot to do with an unjust judge here. But it's the discipleship's going to, the cost is going to get very, very high for our children and our grandchildren if the Lord tarries and does not come. But the cost should not cause Christians to lose heart and to quit praying. The unbelief of others and the scorn that they have toward believers and, um, you know, everywhere around us we hear things getting more and more vocal against Christians. All of that stuff should not cause us to quit praying. We ought always to pray. Prayer is what we are commanded to do. It's part of God's will. Prayer is his means of accomplishing his will. Now he could, he, you know, would have his will anyway, but prayer, he wants us to pray because we're included in the blessings of having his will fulfilled here on earth. And we are told that we must not only pray, but how often? continuously it says we must pray always be anxious for nothing but in everything with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let our request be made known to god it also says in scripture in first thessalonians five seventeen that we are to pray without ceasing here it says pray always and in ephesians six eighteen, it says praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit for what it goes on to say in all occasions and for all the saints. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that we can do absolutely nothing else with our lives but pray? It sounds to me like, oh, got to be praying all day and all night. I'll never get anything done. Never. Well, that'd be a good excuse not to clean the house, or cook the dinner. <laughs> I have to pray. It's a command. I'm praying always. <laughs> do you know that the rabbis actually uh, warned the Jewish people against praying incessantly? Because they said if they prayed incessantly, they would weary God. 
He would just grow weary from hearing their constant prayers. So they said, don't pray always, only pray three times a day. Now we look at that three times a day and say, isn't that commendable? But uh, they were really doing the opposite of what Christ commanded. He said, pray always. And they, he said, pray. And, and they said, say, <laughs> say your prayers. You know, when the Jews would pray three times a day, they would be reading it out of a book. They would just be saying you know, reading and saying, and not necessarily. Sometimes I'm sure it came from their hearts, but not not always. And the um, the Islam tells its people to pray. Does anybody know how many times a day? The Muslims are to pray five times a day. But again, it's just they're going through some rote little memorized prayer or reading it from some book. But Jesus, in contrast, he doesn't just say pray three times a day or five times a day he says pray always and don't say your prayers pray your prayers now i'm that i'm not saying that it's wrong to read a prayer from a book or to have a prayer memorized but what needs to be involved if you do that your heart needs to be you don't just need to be moving your lips so to always pray is What does that mean? It means to make prayer as natural in your life as breathing. It's something that just naturally becomes a continual habit of your day. As you you grow in spiritual maturity, you're going to find that you're sort of just going throughout your whole day talking to the Lord. You know, and some and sometimes that doesn't mean we're moving our lips and actually saying words and, uh, you know, verbalizing sentences to God, because prayer is much more than just the words of our, our lips. Prayer is a continual desire of our hearts in every moment of the day and in every circumstance that we are constantly desiring even if we're not saying the words it's just constantly we are desiring to bear fruit for the lord we are constantly desiring to be christ-like we are constantly desiring to be in god's will we are putting all of our thoughts into captivity to christ and this it just becomes sort of a natural thing you know you're driving down the, the the highway or whatever and you're looking at the beauty of god's creation and you don't have to be You could be listening to some beautiful music, which I hope you are instead of bad music, but listen to beautiful, godly music, and it just lifts your heart up, you know, to praise him in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And you're not maybe necessarily verbalizing words. You're just praising him in your heart, right? You've all experienced that, I hope. And as you get out of the car and you're on your way into Walmart, just kind of be praying, Lord, whatever, whoever I see, whoever I meet, whatever I experience in this walmart store help me to be christ-like you know as i'm standing in the line and and all of a sudden she puts on the blinker and (laughs) help me to be christ-like lord (laughs) it's just a continuous matter of the heart it's not necessarily some verbalized prayer remember the lord in the um sermon on the mount he warned he told his disciples not to have vain repetition That's like, you know, saying uh, the Hail Mary and the Rosary over and over again. That that doesn't do anything. For one thing, you're not supposed to pray to Mary. Pray to God. 
Um, but that doesn't mean a thing. He says that's what the heathen do. They repeat the same thing over and over again. Same thing with some kind of a mantra, you know, where you just say it over and over again. That just bounces off the ceiling and comes right back and smack you on the head. <laughs> Those prayers don't get anywhere. To pray without ceasing is to have a holy, a continual holy desire in one's heart to please the Father and to praise the Father. And, and uh, sometimes do you find that, that persevering prayer is almost like wrestling with the Lord like, like Jacob did? Have you ever wrestled with the Lord about something? That's being persistent. You know, Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord, who was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, until he got the blessings that he wanted. Sometimes we just have to keep wrestling with the Lord. To pray always and faint, faint not um, speaks of it involves persistence. Well, the parable of the persistent widow is, if you remember, it's now the second parable given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ regarding persistent prayer. The first one, which was also only found in Luke's gospel, was back in Luke chapter 11, and it had to do with a parable of the importunate friend. In other words, the persistent friend. I can't remember what we called it. Maybe the parable of the persistent neighbor. Remember that the man had a, um, a visitor show up at his house at midnight, and he didn't have any bread because his wife would get up in the morning and make the bread. So he didn't have any bread to give to his visitor, which was an Eastern custom you had to do even if it was at midnight. So he went over to his neighbor's house. He started banging on his neighbor's door and said, you know, let me have some bread because I've got a visitor. Well, that, that parable um, had to do more with persistence in prayer uh, as a matter of intercessory prayer because the man was really praying for, to meet the needs of another. So that's telling us to be persistent in intercessory prayer for someone else. Whereas this second parable on being persistent in prayer has to do really with a matter of praying for one's own needs. The widow was praying persistently because of her own needs here. Now we could say that the first parable of the importunate friend had to do with hospitality, where this one here has to do with hostility. We could say that the first prayer was for friends, and although I wouldn't consider it a great friend if he showed up at midnight, but anyhow. <laughs> um, the first one was for friends, and the second one is really regarding enemies, because someone had really um, hurt this widow. She, he had probably taken all her money. So the second one has to do with enemies. The first prayer was for provisions. This second prayer was for protection. Now, in both of the parables, the prayers were granted by the persons who were petitioned. For example, the unfriendly uh, neighbor eventually gave in to his, the fellow knocking on his door. He granted the man's request by giving him three loaves of bread. And the second, the, the widow finally gets what she wants from the unjust judge. So both of their requests are met by people, but they were met for their own selfish purposes. Why did the man finally open the door and give his neighbor three loaves of bread? Just to get rid of him. He was being annoyed. The guy kept, he wouldn't give up knocking on his door. And he woke up all his children who were in the bed with him. You know, families used to sleep together. So he finally just answered it to get rid of him. Same thing with the unjust judge here. He answers the woman's prayer only because she's such a nuisance. And he just wants to get rid of her. So they tell us, these two parables tell us that we're, they're really teaching from the lesser to the greater. 
That's the whole purpose here, though. From the lesser to the greater, they tell us that if even unfriendly neighbors and unjust judges will answer the one who is persistent in asking and in seeking and in knocking, how much more will the just, holy, loving God of the universe grant the requests of those who are his own children? You see, the neighbor wasn't related to the other neighbor, and the widow wasn't related to the judge, but we are the children of God, the one we bring our requests to. Now, this first parable of Luke 18 takes us into the legal system of Israel at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it introduces us to two people who were at opposite ends of that legal spectrum. One was a man, and he was a judge. So he represented the epitome of power back then, other than the Sanhedrin. You know, he, a judge had a lot of power. Within his own sphere, he could act with very little fear of opposition. Now, because we are told that he was an unjust judge, verse 6 says, who did not fear God nor regard man, which he himself admits in verse 4, when he's talking to himself, he admits that he has no fear of God and he doesn't have any concern, compassion, and care for his fellow man. So at least he's not a hypocrite, is he? He knows what he is and he, he's not even ashamed of it, which is kind of shocking. But uh, he was a stranger to both godliness and honor. He had no fear of the wrath of God and he had no concern even about his reputation before others. So because we are told all this, um, this means that he was one who had no sense of personal accountability to God, neither did he have any sense of obligation or submission to divine law. He did not care about the Mosaic law. He was Jewish, but he didn't care about the law. And his conscience never bothered him with having a sensitivity toward other people, especially a widow. Wouldn't you think if he's going to be sensitive to somebody, it would be a poor widow? No, he didn't care. So this means that he was a cold-hearted, hard-bitten man who could not be reached on either the grounds of conscience or compassion. Now, in first century Israel, there were two types of judges. There were the Orthodox judges who did believe in the law of Moses, and they were very strict to uphold it. And they were trusted, and they were respected by the common people because they did uphold the law. However, on the other hand, there were those judges who had gained their positions through bribery or flattery of either King Herod or Rome. And they were very corrupt. They were known for being corrupt. They were not trusted. They were not respected by the people. And they were known for being the scoundrels that they were. They were referred to actually by the people as robber judges. So you had the orthodox judges who obeyed the law and tried to the best of their ability to uphold the law in in situations of justice. And there were the robber judges. Now I'll give you one guess as to what kind of judge this guy was. It was definitely a robber judge. And robber judges were positioned in every little town and every little village. We aren't told what town this was. It says in a city. All right, they were in cities too. 
Now, the Talmud actually speaks of these robber judges as village judges, and the Talmud accuses them. The Talmud is the Jewish commentary on the Torah, by the way. It's commentary, many, many volumes on the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And it it speaks of them as being ignorant of, of God's law and covetous for only money and power and possessions. And the judge of this parable was obviously one of these guys. He was a uh, village judge. You know, irreligion and inhumanity is bad in anybody. When you find someone who has no concern for God and justice and God's law and who is inhuman to other, to his fellow man, that's bad in anybody. But it's particularly evil when it's found in a judge. That's serious. That's serious business. That's why we need to pray for our judges in our Supreme Court and our judges in the rest of the country. They they have a very powerful position, which can be very scary if they do not fear God and don't really care about people. They would never admit that. At least this guy admitted it. (laughs) Well, they might admit the first part that they have no fear of God. But King Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 3.16, he said that wickedness in the place of judgment is one of the worst evils. Serious business. Well, the next character, we're not only introduced to the unjust judge, but then we're also introduced to this uh, widow. And again, it's interesting to find out that Luke's gospel has, he, he tells us more about widows than all three other synoptic gospel writers put together. So if you took Matthew, Mark, and John, put them all three together, they don't talk about widows as much as just Luke. And what, again, does that tell us about his heart? You know, he was a physician. He had a compassionate heart. Not that widows are sick, but that he just had a compassionate heart for people, which, you know, you can't help but like Luke, right? I like all of them, but Luke is just a special guy. He spoke more about widows. He's the only one who told us about the prophetess Anna. Remember her? Way back in the, um, the nativity story. He told us about the prophetess Anna and Simeon. And how long had Anna been a widow? Forever. (laughs) She must have gotten married when she was two because she had been a widow for 84 years. (laughs) And then he, Luke is the only one who told us about the widow of Zarephath in Luke 4. He's the only one who told us about the widow of Nain. Remember, it was her son that the Lord Jesus raised from the dead as they were on the way to bury him. And he's the only one who tells us about this persistent widow. And he is the only one who tells us about the widow who gave her might, you know, gave all that she had over in Luke 21. And there's several other times he speaks about not specific widows, but widows in general. So that's interesting to know about Luke and his compassionate nature. Well, even though the law... The Mosaic law was very, is very, very specific about Israel's requirement to take care of widows and who else? Orphans. Take care of widows and orphans. It even says specifically that widows were to be pled for. If they didn't have a man to stand with them in court, they were to supply a man or a judge himself was to plead on the behalf of the widow. But yet... Most people, most widows, I should say, most widows found themselves trying to fend for themselves, especially if they did not have a son um, or another man, another relative to stand with them. Of course, they obviously were a widow because they'd already lost their husband, but um, they were out there. The law didn't 
didn't do. We even find that the Pharisees took advantage of the widows, didn't they? Because Jesus in Matthew 23 somewhere, he says, uh, ye are those that devour widows' houses. They're just abusing widows and taking their money, taking their houses from them. But it was, it was usually a woman, a widow, found herself fending for herself in a chauvinistic um, society. Now, the widow of the Lord's parable had no advocate. She had no protector. And some what had happened, we don't know, but some unscrupulous individual had come along and exploited her in some way. And I imagine he took her for, for her money, whatever she had. Even though justice and law were on her side, yet she found herself helpless before this very indifferent judge. Now, if she had been a woman of wealth, she would have had this judge and probably other judges sniffing around her, calling her every five minutes, wanting to take her case, you know, if she had been wealthy. Um, because they would have wanted money from her and they would have taken a bribe or whatever so that they would would plead her case in a court of law. But she obviously wasn't wealthy. And I imagine the reason she didn't have any money is because whoever this unscrupulous adversary was, he took her money from her. And so she found herself in a bad position. Um, She had three obstacles to overcome. Number one, she was a woman. She was a woman living in a society that thought very little of women and did not allow them to go to court without a husband or an adult son or some other man to stand with them. Secondly, not only was she a woman, she was a widow. She was a widow woman. And thereby, she was easy prey for unprincipled people, such as this adversary of hers. And third, she was very likely without money, or she could have bribed the judge, as was very common with these robber kind of judges. However, she had three strikes against her, but she had one strong thing going for her. This woman had a tongue. She had, she was, she had importunity. She could be persistent. She had determination. Although the judge continued to refuse her case, she continued to come to him. She didn't give up. The poor guy never had a moment of peace. They used to set up their little courts and tents. I think I talk about that in the books, but she was there circling his tent every day (laughs) and, you know, saying over and over again, uh, avenge me of my adversary. It speaks of her continual coming to to wear him out. (laughs) She troubled him. And I like the word trouble. It makes me laugh because the word trouble in the Greek that is used in verse 5, let's see, it says, yet because this widow troubleth me. That word actually carries the idea that uh, of her making herself such an intolerable annoyance that she was wearing him, making him like black and blue. It was, it's actually a word they use for if you give somebody a black eye. She was so annoying that he felt like he was being beat up. I don't think she used her fist. <laughs> but she was just beating him black and blue with her persistence. This woman had some fire, didn't she? Yay. (laughs) And so she said, avenge me of my adversary, and she meant it. She had purposed in her heart not to quit until she got what she deserved. And she deserved justice. The law was on her side. She might not have had any clout, and she might not have had any coins, but this woman could communicate. (laughs) She had a tongue, and she would use it to beat this indifferent judge into complying. 
You know, the midnight caller kept on what? Knocking. She kept on asking and talking. She kept on asking. Persistence was her only resource, and finally it paid off. The judge concluded, you know, to himself, even though I don't care about God, I have no fear of God, probably didn't even believe in God, and I don't care about God's law, and I don't care about people's opinions of me, yet this woman, and I don't even care that she's been unjustly treated by some evil dude out there, yet this woman is wearing me out, so I am going to give in and give her what she wants just so that she will leave me alone. He gave in, but, you know, not because he was moved by her suffering, not because he was moved because of her poverty. He didn't care one bit that she was a victim of of a crime of injustice. He had no outrage at all over the evil that had been done to this poor, innocent woman. He didn't care if justice was served. He was callous to having any compassion for her, which we are told by the man himself which shows us that he had no shame over his injustice. He had no shame over his lack of faith in God and his absence of concern for others. Um, But at least he was honest with himself. (laughs) He knew what he was. He knew he was a scoundrel, and he wasn't even ashamed of it. But this unjust judge knew that he was indifferent to God and his fellow man, and he admitted it. Anyway, it was purely from a self-concerned motive that he finally agreed to avenge her of her adversary. So a powerless woman with absolutely no weapon whatsoever but her persistence to, for her right, you know, for her right to be met, she finally got justice from an evil judge. And we all go, yay, yay, little woman, <laughs> good for you. Now, this parable was not given in order to teach us that prayer is nagging God until he finally, you know, gives in to us. Because he is not at all like this unjust judge. He is not a selfish, indifferent judge who must be manipulated and pestered into finally doing the right thing. Now, there are some religions that actually teach that, you know, like the prophets of Baal, they felt like they had to keep pestering their God until he finally paid attention to them. But the true God is not like that at all. The Lord gave this parable to teach his disciples to apply the principle of persistency to their prayer lives, particularly now. The main subject is particularly when it comes to praying for the kingdom of God to come to earth. And a time when the adversary, when, when will the adversary finally be avenged? When will God's name finally be um, upheld and, and justice finally will reign on earth and all of the bad done against God's people will finally be avenged? When will that happen? We won't see justice and fairness in this world until the time of the coming of the Son of Man and the establishment of his kingdom. And it's going to be a long time. Jesus knew that. He told his own disciples they would not see with their own eyes his coming. And then look at the end of verse 7. He says, um, And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? He's saying it's going to be a long time that I am going to bear with the adversaries 
Why is that? Why is he so long-suffering with those that are unjust? Because it's not his will that any man should perish. He's giving them to repent and come to him. So, but he's predicting it's going to be a long time before his kingdom would come. But he here is teaching by way of contrast. As I told you, he's reasoning from the lesser to the greater. If the poor, persistent widow got the justice that she petitioned for from a selfish, unjust judge, then how much more will God's own children receive eventual justice from a holy, just, honorable, loving father? The one to whom we pray is nothing like the unjust judge of this parable. We are not helpless widows with no standing before God and with no weapon but our own persistence. We have all the riches of Christ in the heavenlies. We have a lot more weapons other than just persistent prayer. We are the children of grace, and we can pray in confidence. We can go boldly before the throne of grace knowing that justice will be served. Now, this widow didn't have any confidence that justice will be served in her case, but we do have confidence that justice will eventually be served. It won't happen until he comes, but we know that eventually everything wrong will be righted. That's good news to look forward to, isn't it? All the unjust judges one day, unless they repent, they will pay. They will pay for their injustice. Our adversaries will receive their due reward for the evil that they have committed. Now, here's where it gets a little more complicated. Dispensationally, this parable is one, as I've been trying to show you over and over again, that is connected with the last days and the final great crisis and the painful circumstances that the godly remnant of Israel will face at that time, the time right before the Lord's coming. That's what he'd been talking about, remember? You've discussed this in your groups. Did you have good group discussion? Is all that clear in your heads? (laughs) Clear as mud, right? But uh, remember the context of this parable. Context is always important. The Lord Jesus has been speaking about his return and the signs that will precede his return to establish his kingdom. Not the rapture, but the return at the end of the tribulation right before he establishes the millennial kingdom. He has been talking about those who will be alive in the days of his coming and those who will ignore the signs of his impending judgment. They remember our, and they'll have many signs right before he comes, won't they? Trump, uh, seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bold judgments, the sign of the coming of the Son of Man, and all sorts of things will happen in the heavenlies. They'll have lots of signs. And yet those who ignore those signs, we are told, were compared to those who were living in Noah's day and in Lot's day. And we were told to remember Lot, Lot's wife. Um, they will ignore the signs, and therefore when judgment comes, they won't be ready. And he says, remember Lot's wife, so that he's warning those people not to have their hearts fixed on the things of this world. They are not to be so intent on seeking to save their own lives that they, um, and their possessions that they actually lose them. Rather, they are to be willing to lose their life for Christ's sake, and many of them will, so that ultimately they really gain their lives for all of eternity. He was talking about all those things. And... Um, 
Notice the particular request of the widow. What was the particular request? Yes, she said she wanted to be avenged, verse 3, of her adversary. And verse 7 contains the statement that God will avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him. Now remember, it was as Jesus was coming off of the subject of the way things will be in the world at the time of his return that he gave this parable of the persistent widow. So in the dispensational context of this parable, the widow of the story does not represent the church. The widow of the story does not represent the church. Although, make sure you understand me, the principles about the need to persist in prayer for that which is right and for that which is just are for all of us of the church age. Are we to persist in prayer? Are we to pray without ceasing? Are we to pray for the kingdom to come? Absolutely. You know, all scripture is given for for all of us that we may profit from it. So, of course, the principles of this parable are for you and I to persist in prayer. But specifically, Jesus is speaking to Israel in reference to the kingdom coming. The church, you see, is not a widow. The church is not a widow. The church is a virgin espoused to Christ. The woman here represents Israel. Israel was called the wife of Jehovah God. But because of her sins, because of her unbelief, and because of her spiritual adultery, she was separated from her rightful husband. And therefore, really, she abides in the world today as a widow, as in the position of a widow, because she has no man to stand on her behalf with her. She doesn't have, the church has Christ to stand on our behalf. But she is basically like a widow in the world with no one to stand for her. And so she's constantly having to go to unjust judges who have no compassion for her, do they? The world doesn't care for her. She's been greatly abused. She's been greatly mistreated and unjustly robbed by her primary adversary. Notice she asked for a vengeance from her adversary, singular. And the Greek word that is used there for adversary in verse 3, where she says, avenge me of my adversary, is the Greek word antidikos, anti-antidikos, which is the very same word used for the devil in 1 Peter 5, 8. You know, he's like a roaring lion. It's the same word, antidikos. In the last days, the devil will, through the Antichrist, wreak absolute havoc on Israel. You know, he will really do everything that he can to rob her and treat her terribly. And also, I say that this doesn't represent the church, although the principles are for us, of course. But it doesn't represent the church because the church is never seen asking for vengeance on her enemies. Are you and I to pray that our adversaries will be avenged? You don't ever see us being asked to do that. Now, Israel did in the Old Testament days. And... um, and, and we see it here with this woman. The church is told to, to um, turn the other cheek. And what? How, what are we supposed to do for our enemies? Pray. We're to pray for our enemies. Because the church, we, we live in the, the church age is the age of grace. But the prayers of Israel, God's elect nation, 
have been lifted up to him before him, before God, day and night for centuries. Uh, You talk about a persistent people. If ever there was a persistent people in this world, it is Israel. She wouldn't be in existence if it wasn't for her persistence. And of course, God, God, of course, keeping her in existence. But she has day and night, day and light, especially the orthodox of the faith in particular, and by the millions who have stood in their prayer shawls, before the Wailing Wall, Phyllis Garner in the morning study yesterday told us about um, Jimmy DeYoung. She got one of his newsletters or something, and she said that they just, when they were just celebrating some of the feasts of Israel, they had a crowd of like 50,000 people standing before the Wailing Wall. And, you know, they have their prayer shawls. You'll be seeing that, Anne. And they stand there, and they, um, and they, they sway when they pray. I mean, day and night, day and night, they have been lifting up their prayers for centuries that God would avenge them of their enemies and all of their unjust treatment. And, of course, during the tribulation period, Israel will be mistreated more harshly than ever before with no one to turn to but um, unjust judges who care neither for God nor for God's law nor for her plight. Now, the only two places in all of the New Testament where we find a prayer for vengeance are here in this parable where four times we read the word avenge and the only other time is in the book of Revelation and it's it's, uh, during the tribulation period after the church is gone and a a lot of those people who will come to faith in Christ during the tribulation, which, praise the Lord, there will be a great multitude of people. That's the one good thing about the tribulation. Many, many, many people will come to faith in Christ during the tribulation. The greatest revival this world has ever seen. But most of them will be martyred for their faith. So in Revelation 6, uh, where is it? 6 something, right? 610. We see the, the souls of those who had been martyred for their faith, the tribulation saints, under the altar of God in heaven. And there is where we have the second prayer for vengeance. The souls of the tribulation saints cry out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? But in both cases, this widow and those tribulation saints, it's not the church. It's not during the church time. We don't pray for vengeance on our enemies. We pray for them to be saved. Now we pray for, you know, God said vengeance is mine. He, he will be the one who will one day um, avenge his own holy name. Well, anyway, so Christ's point is that if even an unjust judge who had no fear of God eventually gave in to the widow's persistent pleading for help, how much more will God help his own children whose trials and heartaches deeply interest him? He's not indifferent toward us at all, is he? He is very much concerned about every hair on our head. Every time a sparrow falls, he knows about it. He's concerned. He cannot turn a deaf ear to the cry of the afflicted. And in due time, he will avenge his own. And when he does, what are we told? It will happen speedily. Look at verse 20. No, no, not 24. Where did I get that? Um, Oh, that's the next verse. Where is it speedily? Eight. Okay, he says, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. You know what that word speedily means? 
it obviously doesn't mean that the kingdom of heaven, God is coming soon because it's been many, many, many centuries since he gave this. But it means quickly. It means suddenly. When the Son of Man does come and justice will finally reign and all the adversaries will be avenged and Satan will be avenged, it is going to happen speedily. And that's what I was talking about, verse 24. Remember, as uh, lightning shineth out of one part of the heaven to the other part. That's how fast it will be. There will not even be time for those who are up on their rooftops to come down into their houses to grab their possessions. That won't do them any good anyway. You know, in Israel, they used to spend their whole days out on their... They had flat rooftops, so they'd be out there in the sunshine, and that's where they would spend the day, and they would basically only come down inside their houses to sleep. So he says, it's not going to be time to, to come down from your rooftops. There's not going to be con- time to come in from your fields. That's how speedily it's going to happen. When the Lord comes, it's going to be fast. And... People need to be, you know, they need to be prepared and ready. But um, because if not, they're going to be taken in judgment. And their bodies are going to serve as food for the carnivorous birds, as we saw in verse 37 of chapter 17. Well, notice that the Lord ended this parable with an interesting question. He said, nevertheless. And when the Lord says nevertheless, it's like, uh-oh, wonder what that means. You know, he's talking in, I think it's in the, the Revelation Church letter to Ephesus, and he's commending her for her her faith and all her good works. And then he says, "Nevertheless, I have this against you." And you go, "Uh oh." <laughs> so here he says, "Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on earth?" You know what that verse suggests to us? Well, first of all, it suggests that he's not going to find much faith on the earth. But it also suggests that instead of the whole world being converted and this conversion being what brings about the kingdom of God on earth, which is a teaching that was taught for many, many years, post-millennialism, where theologians taught that the world was going to, through the gospel message, bring about the kingdom of God on earth. That the world was going to just get better and better because the gospel would spread out and people would be saved and we'd have a kingdom and then Christ would come. We would prepare the world for his coming. Well, that theology vanished after World War II and people finally realized this world isn't getting better and better. Uh, so, so, and this verse suggest. I mean, it, it refutes that because it says, you know, when he comes, and you know, some people will say, well, isn't the gospel going to be preached to all the world before the Lord comes? Isn't there a scripture that says that the gospel is going to be preached before the Lord comes to the whole world? Isn't that why all these missionaries are out there frantically, you know, translating the scriptures? Yeah, the gospel is going to be preached to the whole world before the Son of Man comes. But you know who's going to do that preaching? Not man, an angel. Y'all look, what? Yes, look at Revelation. Oh, where is it? 14.6. There's going to be an angel that is going to fly throughout the heavens of the whole world, circle the whole globe, and preach the gospel to every man. Yes, the gospel is going to be, everybody's going to not have, nobody's going to have an excuse for not accepting the gospel message. It'll be preached to everyone on the world. 
But we are we are told here by the Lord's question that there's going to be few people of faith on earth at the Lord's return. Now this, you have to follow me just a minute longer and we'll be finished, but this shows us that the... No, I, didn't, I wasn't speaking to you. No. <laughs> I was telling them not to take off their thinking caps yet. What this really means is that the church will be gone, Okay. Now, there are people who believe that the church will be raptured before the seven years. I probably should do it this way from where you're sitting, right? Before the seven years of tribulation. That's called pre-tribulation rapture people. <laughs> I am a pre-tribulation rapturist person. I believe the church is going to be called out of here before the seven years of tribulation. The seal jumpets, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. But there are others who believe the church will be raptured somewhere in the middle of the tribulation. There are some that say about five-sixths of the way through the tribulation. And there are others that say the church will not be raptured out of this world until the end of the tribulation. In other words, the church has to go through all, those, all that wrath, all, that judge, all those judgments and everything. Horrible, horrible, horrible. Well, guess what, folks? Would Jesus ask the question, will there be faith on the earth when the Son of Man comes, if he knew his church would be there when he comes? Of course not. He'd know there'd be faith. He's coming to get his church. So this question really refutes post-tribulation rapturists. Rapturists. <laughs> also think about this. I have at least a hundred reasons why I believe firmly that we are going to be raptured at the beginning of the tribulation. But one of the strongest arguments is that we are one with Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. We are one. He's, we're one with him. You know, when you marry your husband, the two become one. All right? Christ and us are one. He is the head. We are the body. All right? Christ suffered the wrath of God where? On the cross. He will never, ever again suffer the wrath of God. Therefore, Christ is not going to go through the seven years of tribulation. So why would he let his body go through the seven years of tribulation? We're one with him. What kind of bridegroom would let his wife go through the wrath, his own wrath, the wrath of God, and beat her up and pull her apart and have her... That's the strongest argument of all in my book. And there's many scriptures that also support it. But anyhow, how did I get on that? Of course. <laughs> all right. Now, the answer to his question. Um, he would find faith on earth if the church was still here. Okay? And he will find some faith on earth because not every person who comes to believe in Christ will be martyred, although most of them will be. Um, Two-thirds of Israel will be martyred. There will only be a third left. And when he comes back, she, w she won't be in faith until she sees him. But when she sees him, then she will look upon him whom she has pierced, and she will mourn for him as an only son. Then she will come to believe in him. And there wouldn't be any faith, probably, if it wasn't for um, those who listened to the Lord's warning in the Olivet Discourse when he said, when you see the, the Antichrist set up the abomination of desolation in the holy place, he told them ahead of time, flee, get out of there, leave Jerusalem, and uh, go to the wilderness. So there will be those who believe and will be hiding out in somewhere like Petra, 
And there will be the 144,000 Jewish witnesses who probably would have been martyred if they weren't sealed and protected by God. They will be there. So the answer to his question is, you know, will there be those of faith when the Son of Man comes? Yes. The answer is yes, but it's a very weak yes because there won't be many. How many were there in Noah's day? Eight. There were only eight. The rest of them suffered judgment. How many were there in Lot's day? There were only four, and one of them turned back and perished on the way, so really there were only three. So the answer is a very weak yes. He will find faith, but not not much. Now, although this, again, I say this in closing, although this is a dispensational teaching, this is the dispensational aspect of the parable, it is evident that the Lord also wanted all of his followers to get something out of it more for our own souls because it was given unto this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. So the, the, the teaching, the principle of the parable is for all of us. We're not to grow weary in our prayer lives. And I know delay oftentimes tempts us to want to to grow weary, doesn't it? But we have to remember again that there's a lot of reasons for the Lord's delay. We may not be ready to handle some of the things we've prayed for. And he knows that we're not ready. Some of it is a preparation of our own hearts. If you have a teenager who wants the keys to the car and you know they're not ready for that request to be granted, you don't give the keys to the car, do you? Delays also, you know, they, um, they may be because of spiritual interference. Daniel's prayer was delayed because of spiritual warfare going on in the heavenlies. Consider that. Also, don't delays cause us to kind of filter through our prayers? Sometimes when we pray for something initially, if we don't get it, we keep praying. We realize over time, oh, that, I really didn't need that prayer. That was the wrong. I was, wasn't praying the right way. So it causes us to kind of purify our, our prayers. Plus, we know that the Lord is more glorified when he delays, like with Lazarus. When he finally comes back and justice reigns on earth, aren't we going to appreciate it a whole lot more than we would if he just came years and years and thousands of years ago? We wouldn't appreciate it because we'd always have it. It's the human animal. We just don't appreciate things until we have to wait for them. And and also, there's just all kinds of reasons for for, um, delay. But most of all, remember that he is outside of time, and he's omnipotent. He knows that he will eventually come back and that all things will be, all wrong things will be made right. So, you know, he's, he's outside of time. And uh, because he's omnipotent, he knows what he's going to do. So just understanding that, that he works on a calendar of eternity, we, in the meantime, just need to be persistent. We need to be challenged to endure and to be steadfast in our prayer lives. So let's commit to do that, okay? All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the patience of your people. Thank you, Lord, that even though this woman was a complete stranger to the judge, we as believers are your very children. And even though the unjust judge did not care one single bit for the woman, you care deeply for those who belong to you. And, Father, we thank you that we have a Savior who continually represents us before the throne of God. 
and uh, the widow had to come to a court of law, but we're so privileged to come before a throne of grace. And even though the woman had to plead out of her poverty, we have the blessed privilege of, of pleading to you out of, well, we have all your riches available to us. And thank you, Father, that you're not a God that has to be coaxed and and persuaded into answering our prayers, that you answer our prayers in your way, in your time, and for your glory and for our ultimate good. And that is something we can cling to and know that it is true. Again, we thank you for the privilege to come together. We just pray your blessing on every woman here and help each of us to do our part this week to to vote lord thank you for the privilege to vote and i pray every woman will vote as her conscience leaders leads her but we do pray in your name jesus amen